pop the bin man's pimple, you dripping dimpness. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. Thank you for the lovely feedback for last week's podcast. Um, which is one I thought I just pulled out of my arse because it was too hot, you know. It was in the middle of a heat wave last week. I did a podcast on Irish summer salads and the Irish reaction to heat. And, and you really liked it based on the feedback I got. Which is good to know. Because I like, I like doing an old ramble every so often. I like just picking something and doing a ramble on it. Not necessarily any deep hot takes or any huge amount of research gone into it. But it's not hot anymore this week. It's The weather is nice. The heat wave is gone. And what we have now is... The, the air is pregnant with moisture. It's cool and wet. And you can wear a t-shirt. You know what I mean? It, it's it's just beautiful. It's it's the type of weather you long for when you're if you're in, a, in if you're in Australia, if I'm in somewhere like fucking Perth, which is incredibly hot and dry, the weather that I fantasize about is what we have right now. It's what I imagine the weather in Japan to be like. It's just cool and overcast with a light drizzle and you can drink the air. The air just has this incredible, incredibly high humidity but it's cool humidity. So I'm very grateful for that and I'm enjoying the fuck out of it. And my relationship with hot Irish weather has been restored. Like, I don't actually want it to be hot and dry in Ireland. I like it to be cold and wet. And then to be wishing for it to be hot and dry. But not for it to actually be hot and dry. Cold and wet, but wishing for it to be hot and dry. There's an aspiration to that. There's a motivation in that. You know? But when it's actually hot and dry, you're just like, Oh, fuck. What am I going to do now? I have the thing I wanted and I don't know if I'm enjoying it enough. So... Lovely cool weather. I'm happy with that. I also... So a buddy of mine has gone away on on a fucking staycation, right? Down to Kerry. For a week. And he gave me his virtual reality headset. It's one of those good ones. So I've been using virtual reality this week. And... I mean, what can I say? It's incredible. It's incredible. I'm someone who doesn't... I'm not interested in psychedelic drugs because I'm my anxiety. I'm I'm too anxious a person to give myself over to a psychedelic experience. So putting on a virtual reality fucking helmet, a good one, is the closest I'm gonna get to ayahuasca. And it's fucking overwhelming. So I was like playing virtual reality table tennis. I was walking around virtual reality environments. Like, there's these little things for my hands as well that vibrate when I touch things in the virtual world. So literally, my brain forgets that I'm in virtual reality and now it becomes reality. But then when I take the helmet off, I'm now in actual reality. And it... It gave me some existential anxiety. It gave me some some pretty, pretty heavy feelings. First off... It made me cognitively realise that reality itself might be a simulation. 
When you put on a helmet of virtual reality and you walk around a digital world and it feels fucking real, then cognitively, it's like seeing God. It's like a secret of the universe that was beyond my perception now becomes revealed to me. It's like, ah, okay, so when I put on this virtual reality helmet, which is definitely fake, but yet it feels 100% real after about a minute, then when I take it off and now I'm in so-called reality, well, who's to say this isn't a simulation also? And then I was playing this virtual reality game called Moss, where I'm basically a godlike figure and I'm overseeing this little cute rabbit. So th think of like Sonic the Hedgehog or Super Mario Brothers, except you're in the game. You, this is your world. You look around you and you are in this environment, except you're God and you're overseeing this lovely cute little creature and you control when it jumps and runs. And then the creature looks up at you. And when the creature looked up at me, I got f overwhelmed with the response. Overwhelmed with a sadness and a compassion. L like when I was a kid playing Super Mario, I didn't give a fuck about Super Mario. It's like, look at this little stumpy, greedy Italian prick looking for gold coins. I didn't give a shit about him. If, if he fell down a hole or, or got murdered by a turtle I didn't give a fuck but when I was playing this moss game and now I'm in the world and I'm looking down at this gorgeous little cute little rabbit with a little sword and now I'm responsible for its its welfare <laughs> I just I started crying I started crying and had to take the helmet off couldn't couldn't handle it so that was quite overwhelming so I had to get back into meditation now so now I'm meditating twice a day because I'm using virtual reality. So I put on my virtual reality helmet. I play a bit of virtual reality table tennis. Enjoy it. Experience kind of overwhelming existential anxiety. Take the helmet off. And then meditate for 20 minutes. Around things like compassion and smells and my senses. To ground myself in actual reality. So that's what I've been up to. Now that the hot weather is gone. <laughs> So this week, I've got a little treat for you. I have, um, I brought back on a guest who I had before, who was very, very enjoyable the first time. Man Khan Megan. And Man Khan is, he's a journalist. He's someone who, he's a travel writer. He makes travel documentaries. He has a huge interest in the Irish language and Irish culture and Irish history. And he's just a very fascinating person. Person, And I love chatting with Mancon because of how his brain works. He's just incredibly interesting. And he's got a well of knowledge when you speak to him. And we have a lot of fun. So I interviewed him last year, like last October. And we had great crack on the podcast. And all of ye people loved have, uh, when I had him on. And what I noticed was... We ended up we ended up speaking about Mankan's life, and it was amazing. It was a f fantastic. But by the end of the podcast, I'd realised I hadn't asked him much about the areas that he's interested in, in particular Irish folklore, the Irish language. So I brought him on this week to speak specifically about Irish folklore and Irish words. So that's what I have this week. I've got Mankan back on. 
and we have a lovely chat about the significance of water in Irish history and Irish folklore. Um, we speak about Irish folklore when it was non-patriarchal, when it embraced the female, we'll say, rather than retellings of Irish folklore that are very male-centred. And also, what I begin chatting to him about is when Man Khan was on the podcast the last time, he told this story about being in Africa and travelling on a river and getting lost. And we ended up going on, on a segue and he never got to finish the story. So he finishes the story of what happened in Africa. So what I'm going to do is, because it's a, it's a fun chat and I don't want to interrupt it, I don't want to interrupt it. I'd like to play it all the way through rather than interrupt it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do my ocarina pause early before I get into the chat with Man Khan. And that way it's not interrupted. You can just listen to it. All right. So here's the ocarina pause. Nine minutes in. This is a record. This is the earliest the ocarina has ever been played, I'd say, on this podcast. 
This podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. All right, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. So this podcast is my full time job. It's what I do for a living. Um, it's quite a bit of work, but it's work that I absolutely adore and love doing. And it's work that I have the space and time to do because I'm supported via Patreon. You know, it's it's incredibly difficult to earn a living as an artist today. Incredibly difficult. But Patreon makes this possible. So all I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. If you enjoy my podcast and you're listening to it regularly, just consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. That's what I'm looking for. Pay me for the work that I'm doing. If you can't afford it, if you're out of work, something like that, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay. You can listen for free. But if you can afford it, you're not just paying me for the work that I'm doing. What you're doing is you're paying for the person who can't afford to listen. You're paying for them to listen. So everybody gets a podcast. I earn a living. It's a wonderful model that's based on a soundness and kindness. All right. And it works magnificently. For the first time in my career, I have a predictable and regular income that allows me to plan and to take creative risks. Okay. And thank you to all of my patrons for making that possible. Thank you so much. Also, it keeps the podcast independent. Um, the podcast space in general is n- becoming saturated with big corporate money. All right. My podcast is independent. I have the odd advertiser to fulfill my contract with Acast. But if I don't like an advertiser, I can tell them to fuck off. And most importantly, no advertiser can suggest or say to me what my content is. They can't change my content. And that's the most important thing, to be honest. I get to make the podcasts that I want to make and that you want to hear because advertisers can't fuck that shit up and they love to fuck that shit up. It's why so much TV and radio is harsh shit and and almost impossible to watch or listen to. It's advertisers do that. So catch me on Twitch once a week, twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast on Thursday nights and follow me on Instagram, blind by boat club. All right. Share the podcast, like the podcast, you know the crack. And support, support all independent podcasts. If you're listening to an independent podcast, support it. Not just financially, but talk about it, share it, word of mouth. This is the stuff that really matters. Dog bless. So without further ado, um, here is my chat with Mancon Magan. If you're interested in Irish folklore, the Irish language, stuff like that, you're going to find this really, really interesting. Um, I didn't want to interrupt Mancon too much because he's just a great person to, to, to leave him talk. So I didn't want to interrupt him too much, which means that there might be a few things in here, especially around Irish folklore, where I don't stop him and say, can you explain what this is? What Can you explain what that is? I tried to do it as, as much as I could without interrupting his flow. So apologies if you're not too familiar with Irish folklore or early Irish literature and you get confused at points. Exactly. Um, so one thing, when we had our chat the last time, we were darting between so many subjects. You had began a story about your tri- first trip to Africa when you were a young fella and I interrupted you and you never got to finish the story. 
and there was people on Instagram asking, can you finish the fucking story in Africa? <laughs> yeah. Um, and like you did me a big favour. So I told that story in a book called Truck Fever. And that book came out maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe 12, 13 years ago. And I had loads of copies left. I had a warehouse full of copies. Well, you know, I had, a, I had my garage full of copies of it. And uh, now I don't have any copies left because all of your listeners started buying it. And so the only way you're going to hear the end of the story oh, fantastic. now. Yeah. Is if I tell you the end of the story. Um yeah, so as we, you know, we were, I remember I was 19 or 20. I was in the back of an ex-army truck. All had gone well, going down through Algeria, to kind of Togo, Benin, into Central African Republic and Cameroon. And then like just the world fell apart in the Congo, in Zaire, where our main driver, um, Belinda sort of left us there, abandoned us in the middle of this tiny town called Mobutu, I call sorry, um, Bumba, but very near where mm-hmm. the dictator Mobutu was born. And um, we were left without money, without, you know, prophylactics, without tablets, without anything whatsoever, basically left to fend for ourselves in the middle of like the darkest, most sort of most yeah, corrupt military regime at a time where the president, the dictator was falling apart. So the army hadn't been paid. There were no there was no money for anyone. There were no roads to be built. There was no diesel left in the country. And we had just been caught, been captured in this net without without anything. Um, and as I was telling you last time, like the dry season had come early. So there were no roads left in the country. They'd all, um, they'd all been destroyed by this stage. There was only these mud tracks and we had the only four-wheel drive truck that had come because the first Gulf War had just begun. So all the borders around us had closed. Um, and what happened, like... After yeah. about five days, and I told you, I'd, you know, through my own idi- stupidity, we had to bought this big sack of this plastic bag of cannabis. So we were sort of out of it and we were trying to negotiate with the, with the, uh, yeah. with the soldiers. We just were lost. We didn't understand. Now, any, old, any Africa hand, any, you know, any experienced Africa person would know if you're captured in a military dictatorship, it's the military who are behind it. But we didn't realize that. So we were negotiating with them. They weren't, we weren't getting anywhere. And eventually what happened was a barge turned up a barge turned up um, on the, on this river. Now, as I said, the water, the the dry season had come early, so there wasn't enough water for a barge. So it kept on slowly going down the river from Kiss yeah, from Kinshasa to Kisangani, from the old St- Leopoldville to Stanleyville, getting stuck the whole time on a, on a sand you know dune or sand bank, and then hoping it rock itself off. And so mm-hmm. the. And I told you there was a big split in our truck at this point. Half of the people were petrified. Uh, half of the, we were all, most of them were English people or a few Aussies and New Zealand people and me, the one Irish person. Um, and we were all just the dregs of the earth. But half of them were petrified and hadn't lost their money or their passports because they hadn't decided to engage with African life like we had, basically hadn't been stupid and got stoned. Mm-hmm. And the rest of us had nothing. Um, and so when the barge came, that 10 left us, they abandoned us. And we realized our only chance of getting out of that place was if they had um, shared the tiny bit of money they had left with, with us so we could buy a ticket. But they didn't. So they abandoned us. We were left there yeah. basically to die. Um, and when you're 19 or 20, you're full of idealism. I just thought, this is what I want for life. I want to I want to live my life, even if it means death, by by hanging out with friends and by trusting people and by exploring my, my world around me rather than hiding and protecting myself and being fearful. So we were, and now we were in delirious cannabis haze, which was probably why we were, uh, I was feeling so idealistic. 
But eventually, after mm-hmm. another three days, and by this stage we had no water, uh, we had no food, and we had to drink the river water, as I explained to you, and I got Bill Hartz, yeah. That's that parasite, there was a parasite you got. Exactly, I got Bilharzia, yeah, or schistosomiasis. It's this little slug or snail that goes up into your urine, that gets into your body, and it create it does you no harm for the first few years, but slowly it creates a shell, a calcium layer every year in your kidneys, and basically you turn to stone, you turn to a shell from the inside out, and there was no cure for it at the time, but I arrived <laughs> back in Dublin and uh, the Tropical Medical Bureau had the World Medical Council had just come up with a new tablet and the Irish Tropical Medical Bureau gave me the first tablet and I was cured Um, so I was okay that way but so we were stuck there we had no way out until finally this American truck came and we told them how the others had abandoned us and they had money so they were able to find a way despite the fact as I say there was literally no diesel left in the country this time the very end the country was entirely bankrupt like the the Zairean currency at the time was like in the inflation was leaping about like 300% every day but these people had so much money they were able to find one small barrel of diesel and then they got some local people to cut out um, tree trunks to make pirogues which are you know the floating wooden canoes and they got three huge tree trunks carved them out we got into those and we slowly made our way um, down upriver upriver to Kisangani and it was really tough like there was lightning there were storms on the river it took it took four it took five days in all um, and again we had no water we were in the belting hot sun like at this stage a lot of my friends were getting um, we all had amoebic dysentery but they were all they were getting malaria they were getting fevers um, and eventually on the fourth day just before we arrived what, in Kisangani what's dysentery what's dysentery mankind it's just a really bad, well, it's a bad, it's diarrhea, basically. It's a stomach, it's an upset stomach from just, we got it from the river water. Um, but, you know, when you when you get weak, you know, your body gives in. And that's one of the first things, obviously, your your gut flora, the inner bacteria inside your stomach is so different from Africa. That, so we were, we were all sort of, a lot of us were basically in fever deliriums. Um, and we were drinking the water and knowing we were going to get Bilharzia or Black River blindness, both of which had no cure. Black River blindness is probably worse. Um, And on the fourth day, we looked ahead of us and we saw on a sandbank, we just saw this shady thing way, way, like there was intense heat. It's on the right on the equator. So um, in the heat. And once we approached it, we realized it was the it was the barge with the other 10 people who had abandoned us to die. Now, there was probably, I don't know, maybe 200 people on that barge. It was just it wasn't a barge, really. It was a floating metal sheet with a with an old Rhine river barge pulling it slowly upriver. And we got on, um, we, we slowly realised that we were going to pass them, but we were still miles away. We realised we couldn't go at night. We had, for the first two days, we had, you know, um, canoed at night and day. But we were realising we, we overturned the, the canoes and there were both crocodiles and hippopotamuses in the water. So every night then we'd just, we'd, we'd go on land and we'd ask the local tribesman could we stay there could we just sleep on the ground um so this night we re- we pulled in again we pulled into this tiny just nothing really there had been an old processing factory during the days of Leop- king leopold and the belgians maybe in the 1920s but there was nothing there and we, we lay down on ground and like normal mm-hmm. uh, a tribesman comes out a chief comes out from a local tribe and demands just to know who we are to, so that we ask his permission and then you normally pay him something to sleep there but we told him and we told him the story about these other people who had abandoned us in fact the the americans told the, the tribes people and they said they had a gift for us they had oh they happened to have one crate of coca-cola 
Coca-Cola. This Coca-Cola was probably three years old. You know, the glass bottles in a red plastic crate, they've been keeping it there. I don't know how they got it. And the Americans said they were going to buy it off them so that when we passed the people who had abandoned us, uh, we could all be drinking Coca-Cola and looking like we were free and we were going to be in Kissingani that night and all was going to be well. So the next morning, we got on the mm-hmm. back on the river. Slowly, we approached the the, the, the the metal barge or the metal sheet, the floating sheet. And what we saw was devastating. Basically, the hundreds of people so you know were, were crammed on that sheet so much that they couldn't sit down. They all had to, were standing up or leaning against each other. And we could see they were just as fever-stricken and sick and malaria-ridden as we were. But the Americans told us that this was important. This was about revenge. And we needed to clean ourselves from the trauma we'd experienced. And we needed to put on happy faces and open up the Coca-Cola. And we all had to sing. And we all had to come up with a song that we could all sing. It took a long time for us to decide a song that we, the English and Irish people, and the Americans and the the three local uh, Congolese or Zairean boatmen. And eventually we came up with On the Rivers of Babylon. And so as we passed them, we all just sang. We said nothing. We drank our Coca-Colas. We (laughs) sang and slowly glided. And they knew we were going to reach Kissingani that night. And it was like the biggest healing thing I've ever had in my life. And finally that night we did arrive in Kisangani. And I remember, I remember just the greed in me, the selfishness. I just left everyone. And there were some girls and people, younger girls and people there who were a lot weaker. But I just ran up trying to get to a restaurant. And we found somewhere open. It was about 10 o'clock at night. And I, everyone charged in after me. And we all ordered everything we could think of, you know, from it was just an outside barbecue pit. And all the food came. Yeah. And we couldn't eat any of it. Our bodies had forgotten how to eat. We just let to stare the food and I wasn't able to eat and none of them were able to oh eat. Oh my God. Until well into the next day. Yeah. So then we, sp- we spent about three days in Kissingani slowly recovering until the other 10 arrived. Their, their floating barge arrived and um, Belinda was there, the woman who had abandoned us, the leader of the truck and the truck was there. And she just said, um, she just said, I don't care what happened. You need to get on with it. We still have to finish this trip. We have another two months to get to get to, to get on through Tanzania to Kenya. And so we all got back in the truck. She got us all very, very drunk. We had a false floor in the truck full of spirits. Well, it had been full of spirits that we had bought in Ciota in the Spanish uh, wow. duty-free course port. And she sort of knew that. You know, she had maybe either between seven and ten overland trucks she had left, she had led before over the years. And she knew that the only way you're going to get through was with a lot of spirits. So she got us all legless drunk, told us to forgive and forget. And we continued on for another two months. When you mentioned there about the Coca-Cola, one thing that came into my head was... So around that time, or I think it might have been the 70s. So when, I don't know, was it the UN or was it some charity organization? They were trying to get diorolite, like electrolyte salts to as many people in the world as possible. And what they found, the most effective way to deliver uh, electrolyte salts or diorolite to the most remote parts in the world was if they used if they used Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola was getting everywhere. So they ended up designing these triangular diorolite packages that they could fit between bottles of Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola had the most effective distribution network in the world. That's ingenious. That's amazing. And like often when I've had severe amoebic dysentery or dysentery or diarrhea in places in India and South America, and I don't, I mean, I'm always looking for access for diarrhea lights. And if I don't get it, you know, the best, the second best thing is seven up that's allowed to get flat. It almost has that matches the same element of sort of salts, minerals and and sort of sugars that, that your body needs 
so that you don't die. And you know, diarolite was invented by a Limerick man called William Brooke O'Shaughnessy. Come on. Yeah, there's a fella called William Brooke O'Shaughnessy and he... He, and he was one of the first people to do uh, electrolyte salt therapy in the late 18th century. He's also, and he's from Limerick, he's the first uh, Western doctor. He's the first doctor to introduce the medicinal use of cannabis to Western medicine in the late 1800s. And that's William Brooke O'Shaughnessy from Limerick. Phenomenal. One thing I really wanted to get, get to speak about more on the last podcast than we didn't was you're very interested in the etymology of Irish words. And one thing I'm very interested in is... Uh, like I, I did a podcast recently, I found uh, I found a document. I found a, 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 it was it was an archaeological journal written in the eighteen forties, and it was about English people hearing Irish spoken in the Berber areas of North Africa. There was this phenomenon around the the eighteen forties, eighteen fifties, where these English people are convinced that they heard Irish spoken in the Berber areas of North Africa, and there was also a story in the 1810, where a farmer in Antrim claims that Tunisian sailors wa- uh, washed up near his land and the Tunisian sailors were able to go to his labourers who spoke Irish and they were able to have an, a conversation with each other. So in the 1800s, there was this opinion that Irish share, shared huge commonalities as a language with the language of North Africa. And what's your opinion on that? Is that a myth or is there something to it? Yeah, I remember hearing of that and I remember checking into it and on my feeling it's it's just yeah it's it's like I suppose it's it's a myth or just a good story that could they couldn't see any grounding of fact like you know the way people love tall tales from you know in the Victorian era but really in the middle in the, the medieval yeah. ages you look at any of those stories and they ju- it's all about exaggeration and which is just so hard to how do you separate the mythology or the the exaggeration from truth um and so I looked into that. I remember when I was writing my book, 32 Words for Feel, the book about the language, and I couldn't find, I wanted so badly for it to be true. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't find it. You, you know, have you ever come across, people are always talking about a Japanese man who did experiments on water crystals and realized he could mimic the shape of water crystals. So like the water from dirty the water samples from dirty water had ugly crystals and water from beautiful um, sources of spring water had gorgeous crystals. And if you sang to them or if you said nice words, the crystals were nice and wow. the opposite. And now the amount of people who quote that fact to me, and I remember the first time I thought I heard about it, I just, it made absolute sense and I wanted to tell everyone about it. But, um, oh, what is his name? Some Sugamoto or something. But he's, no one has ever managed to replicate that test. It's one of those, like when I heard about the Tunisian, I thought, I want that to be true. Just likewise with these water crystals. But I don't think they are. And what I was thinking it was, Mankan, is I just thought it was kind of a, a, the people who were writing this study at the time were, they were kind of posh English people. And I felt that it was kind of a a noble savage trope or or maybe a bit of Orientalism where they were just, them as as colonizers were comparing the poor people of North Africa and the poor people of Ireland and going, Asher, aren't they the same? 
Yeah, um, but at the same time, what am I? Just today, I'm I'm writing a book now about place, and I was I was looking at there's a, you know there, there's the five sacred trees of Ireland, these um, ancient trees that were written about in the old annals. They're written. We have accounts of them written about in the 14th century, but they're they're way older than that. They could be like 2,000, 2,500 years old, and they say they were brought to Ireland by a magic giant from the other world who was clearly supernatural because he went from from the rising sun to the setting sun um and he's called he's called the the triple um holder of the three keys which if you ever want a supernatural magical word you know this man is clearly powerful and but what they say about him is the reason he comes to ireland because he's passing I'm sorry, from where sun. are you reading about this man con where are you reading about this mm. so um it's a good question because uh because I like I'm on so on your Instagram, people are saying, "Where do you get these stories?" So all of these stories are in the manuscript. So you know, all our literature. The only way we have these ancient stories is because they were written by monks or scribes. You know, in maybe ideally from the eighth century, but really mostly from the twelfth, thirteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth century, and they were all written. Some were written in Latin, but mostly in Irish, in either Old Irish or Middle Irish, and then they were translated in the nineteenth century or the early 20th century. Now, they were only accessible to scholars until, you know, the last maybe 10 years or 15 years. And now all of them are on the internet. So both the original Irish or old Irish or middle Irish versions and then the English translations. And so there's this wealth of information there. And of course, then there's all later versions that people would have, you know, um, edited them and made them made them more accessible, sort of Druid sites and things like that, and pagan Celtic Christian sites. But they sometimes will change things. Um, but yeah, will I give you a great example of that? Yes. Um, there's a like this the myth, and I need to get. It's okay, I need. To, I remember to go back to what I was saying, which was the trees. But Shan Anya. So the Irish for the River Shannon, as we know, is is um, Shannon on on Shunan, and the Shunan is a female god, goddess, as are all rivers. I might get back to that, but it's either Shunan was a name of the the female goddess, or otherwise it was Shan Anya, Old Anya, and Anya is a really powerful goddess. I might get back to her too. But what we are what we're told from the nineteenth century translations about the Shannon is she was this uppity goddess, uppity woman who wanted more wisdom than she had access to. And so she goes to a holy well to try and get more knowledge and she gets her just desserts by being killed, by being drowned by the water. And so what that is, is there's a in that story, and there's a, the same, the roots of the story about the Boyne River, which we touched on last time, but are similar. It was the Boyne, a mother goddess, who mm-hmm. was drowned for daring to want more wisdom, more knowledge, more creative um, potency and power. And what that is really, what we need to be aware is these are 19th century English, uh, sorry, Irish men, but Victorian men translating the original Irish. And so they would have put their own twist on it. You know, 19th century patriarchal men would have put a slightly anti-women twist. And whenever there was talk about goddesses, they would have stressed the fact that they were just uppity um, women who didn't know their place. So we need to be really aware that we're really lucky that we have the written version, written versions of these ancient oral myths from maybe, you know, the 12th century to the 15th century in books like Lauer Nahura, the Book of the Dun. Are you able to read the Middle and Old Irish? Are you able to read those versions? I am not. No, I'm not able to read Middle or Old Irish. And I'm not a scholar in anything, which is like I'm a journalist, really. So my knowledge is very thin on everything. 
Um, and it, it, I was aware of it having, you know, this book I wrote, whatever, 32 Words for Fields, it did very well over the last year. And people now come to me thinking I'm an expert and I'm an expert on nothing. All I knew, all I'm just trying to gather all these amazing resources mm-hmm. that are now easily available on the internet and trying to, you know, to um, separate out the the, 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 the the exaggerations and the slight inaccuracies that, um you know, eager Druid's Druid followers and, um, you know, followers of sort of pagan early Christian belief, romantic myth, people who are looking for myth and just trying to see, do we, what basis do we have for, yeah. for any of this truth? And can you tell me about the, these five trees that you mentioned earlier, the five trees of Yeah, Ireland? exactly. So, you know, what? so in this particular story comes from... Um, the Lauerbui Lekin, so the yellow book of, of Lekin, it was a yeah. 15, early, very early 15th century manuscript, but then it would have collected tracts that were far older. Um, and it talks about this giant who comes from sun to sun. But he says the reason he comes to Ireland, he comes to the hill of Tara, um, is because he heard about a Palestinian man, a man in Palestine wow. that had made the sun stop in its course. So this was some reference to Jesus. But what we see is that these stories that, you know, could be 2000 years old or at least 1500, they're aware of um, they're aware of what's happening in the Middle East, even before Christianity, before the first missionaries started arriving in 430 AD. Wow. Yeah. So we knew there was a bigger world out there. And Mankon, one thing that I've also heard about the origins of the Irish language, right? And uh, not North Africa. I've heard that... Phoenician, the, the the pre-Greek culture of the Phoenicians, that there's huge similarities between the Irish language and the ancient Phoenician language. Is there anything in that, or again, is it one of these myths? I think it's it's mostly a myth. Like the Irish language, as we sort of talked about last time, it's not really very old in Ireland. Well, you know, so I think I said the Celtic people, and that word is often complex, but the Celtic people are the people who spoke the Celtic languages that are still spoken, you know, in Ireland, in Scotland, um, and in Wales, and Manx, and, Corn- and Cornish, and then the, the different strand of Celtic languages in, in northern France and Brittany and Galicia. But they, they only arrived in, they were a main culture of mainland Europe, and they only really arrived in Ireland in about maybe 500 BC or maybe 800 BC. Okay. And they brought this language with them. So the Irish we spoke, we speak now, we can trace the words that are in the in the language. Most of them can be traced back to Indo-European, which is the main language that was spoken in the center between Europe and Asia, like mm-hmm. thousands of years ago. So we know that we all spoke this one language and then it divided out. And, and so, you know, it's pretty clear. But what we don't know is that the language that was spoken here before 500 BC, before the Celts yeah. came, some of those words by these Bronze Age people, some of those words must still be in Ungaelga, must still be in the Gaelic language. That, and we need to sort of pick out those ones and and find out the really old ones. Yeah. And what about the, the similarities in words between the Irish language and languages in India? Well, you know, we touched a little bit last time on like the main connections between Irish is with the Indian language with Hindu and Sanskrit and the languages of India. And we touched a little bit last time on the connections with Arabic. There's not many. I mean, I pointed out some of the words that are very similar between Irish and Arabic and whether they're coincidence or not, it's hard to know. 
um, particularly the Shamraka and Shamrock. Yes. Shamrock. But there is no end to the amount of similarities between Irish and Indian culture. You could talk of anything. Our literature is, is very similar. Our rules and laws are very similar. Our way of life, our noble, our sort of way of um, feudal system of 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 separating out the peoples and then the amount of words that are very, very similar in Irish and, and Sanskrit. Even our gods are the same. And I mean, we touched on some of them last time. There's no end to that. We basically are the same people who were divided by time. And so you see, I think last time I talked, it's like if you dropped a stone into a pond of water, the ripples come out. So that stone would have been dropped in the center of Europe and Asia, where they meet. Yeah. And then other cultures and other tribes would have come in the thousands of years since. Fucking hell. And can you give us some specific examples? Yeah. So like even words, I'll start with, there's a word, um, um, monoma is an Irish word for mind or thought or desire. And it's almost the same word as the Sanskrit word manaman and the modern Hindu word, which is to express the idea of, of, of a wish or to pray. Then Brehav is an Irish judge and Brahman is, uh, is uh, you know, uh, the leader or the person, mm-hmm. the, the key figure who came to judgments in India. And it comes from the same root, Brit. And Brit means master of mantras. So the okay. Irish word for a judge is mast, is bre, brehav, the master of mantras, mm-hmm. which just shows, you know, a brehav, a judge, it's something druidic, it's something powerful. It's someone who had this lore from way, way back and was able to then use it to come to judgments. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, so even the deva, the, you know, I think we talked a little bit last time, the Vedas, the Vedas yeah. are the gods of, of Hindu culture, these key gods. It was actually two groups of them and one were the devas and the devas, these gods, it's the exact same word as dia, the Irish for mm-hmm. God. In fact, Dia and Deus and the Greek Zeus and the Latin Deus is the same cognate, the same root as Dia. It was all, there was just this one God. Mm -hmm. In terms of social class, the leading social class in Ireland were the the Philly, the poets, Mm -hmm. and they were more powerful than kings. Like in the Toho de Donan, uh, sorry, in the Tainbo Coolney, you know, the great cattle raid of Ulster, of Cooley, um, before... A king needs to ask permission from a poet before he breaks up a fight. Wow. Uh, they had absolute power. And just in the same way as the Brahmins had absolute power in India. And they both, that absolute power corrupted them. I mean, the Brahmins today still in India, they're the ones who are controlling the caste system. They're the ones who are controlling the political party. They just had way too much power. In Ireland, the Philly, the poets, you know, took over from the role of the Druids. When the Christians came, they banned the Druids and just the Philly, the poets, took over their power to be able to say words that changed reality. Wow. And again, we talked a little bit about Amergain, the first ever Irish poet and Druid to arrive in Ireland, who basically summoned up the country. And we know the words that he said. We know the first words he arri- we said when he arrived in Kerry. I'm Gwei, I'm Wed, I'm Tom Trehem, I'm Fuim Mara. That goes on and on. But I'm Gwei, I'm Wed, I am the wind on the sea. And even school level Irish, we can hear that. I'm Gwei, it's the same word, the wind. I'm Mwer, Mara, Mwer, the sea. I'm Ton Trehem. Ton is still a wave in Irish today. Trehem, strong, still word. I'm Fuim Mara. Fuim is still the modern word for sound, the sound of the sea. So we have from thousands of years back the first words that were said in this uh, in this country that manifested the land that brought the land to life. That that's that's on a level of 
Native American peoples. You know, that puts us on a level of indigenous people who can mm-hmm. summon up reality by speaking. It. One little question there as well, Mankan. Um, so when you're speaking about, uh, you know, these these texts from, we'll say, the 8th century that were being written uh, by monks, were these monks effectively recording our oral history and writing it into books? And how did that then clash with Christianity? Yeah, that's the big question. That's what we can never know. What was their agenda and how how true were they to what they were um, transcribing? Like, you can imagine, they would have had, a, had an agenda to make these stories sound as exaggerated and ridiculous as possible. So we're blind. Like, we're so lucky we have these manuscripts from, as you say, the 8th century up until the 16th or 17th century. But we don't know how how literally they transcribe them. We have a few hints because some of the scribes said, I, you know, this is my name. I have transcribed this accurately, though I don't believe a word of it. And I am a true Christian. So they they felt a real strong urge to record truth. And that's the thing that both the Brehans, the, 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 the Brahmins in India and the Druids in, Ire- in Ireland, the most important thing for both of those people was memory, was truth, because it was the only way, like both Druidic and Brahmin power was based mm-hmm. on your memory. Who Could you remember the climate that happened uh, a thousand years ago or a few hundred years ago? Could you remember the genealogy of um, every single king and every single key person because there was nothing else beyond memory back then. You were barbaric and ignorant if you couldn't remember all the, the best fishing holes, the best, the winds that could happen, the different plants, the different landscapes abroad. So there's a great, in the Shanachas Moor, which is the ancient text, again, you'll find it online translated, it's the first attempt to transfer the oral traditions into writing. And it asks the question in a sort of question and answer, like a Socratic dialogue. It says, what is the preserving shrine? In other words, how do you best preserve knowledge and wisdom? And the reply is, not hard. It is memory and what is preserved in it. Okay, but then it asks the same question again to really hammer this home. What is the preserving shrine? And the second time, not hard. It is nature and what is preserved in it. Now, that is powerful. That means just like the aboriginals in in, in um, Australia, yeah. the Druids and the Brahmins realized the only way you could keep memory. I mean, you can keep it in the oral tradition by saying the words and, you know, making poems and rhymes. But really, you had to build it into the landscape. So you had to have mythology connected to mountain, to river, to tree, to sky, to animal. Just like we saw those, you know, potent animals in sacred caves in Europe from 20,000 years ago and in Aboriginal culture from 20 and 30,000 years ago. The knowledge and wisdom was contained within stories that were linked to the land. So that's what makes us in Ireland... It's, a, it's an exaggeration to say Aboriginal, but indigenous and rooted to an extent that no one in Europe has the same rootedness. So in, in the absence of paper, in the absence of writing, what, what you do is you, you, you have to create these mythologies and stories about mountains and about a tree and about the rivers and about the land or about an animal as a way to preserve history because there's no, there's no writing as such. You create myths. Exactly. There you have it. Yeah. And so, you know, the, we hear in India, as so we hear in Aboriginal culture about the song lines, or it's also called the Churunga lines. And that is the, an Aboriginal from any different tribe can, so an Aboriginal can, can cross huge swathes of land in Australia, 
by without knowing the land or anything, by just chanting the lines and the words that he would have learned or he or she would have learned from their ancestors. And this will summon up for them the sort of climate they're entering into, the sort of landscape they're entering into, where water holes might be, what sort of animals live there. And even if they don't have the same language with a different with another Aboriginal tribe, like these people have been here, you know, 20 or 30,000 years, they've developed many languages, they can understand it beyond language because it's there's knowledge within the rhythm rhythms they say the words when they're pacing on the land and somehow that brings the land to life it's it's phenomenally potent but again you know about four years ago in 2014 the nobel prize was won by scientists who realized that we have a part of our brain that maps knowledge with space so we, it's the, our spatial system in our brains, just like a bird's spatial system, knowing a swallow is knowing how to get from Ireland to Africa. In, our, in human beings, it's connected in with um, the spatial patterns is connected in with knowledge. And so that's how the Aboriginals can walk the land. The memories come back to them in these rhythms and then they see the future. They see what happened here thousands of years ago, back to glacial times, and they see you know, even things like water holes and marks, geological, ancient geological marks on the landscape. Now, we clearly don't have something as developed as the Churunga lines, as the song lines, but our Din Shanachas, which is our collection of stories and mythology about place, the lore of notable places, has enormous amount of information of things that would have happened not only a thousand or two thousand years ago, but hints at things that happened when the humans first arrived here 10,000 years ago. I can't remember if I gave you examples of that last time, but 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 I can if you want. This is I'm having my trouble. I'm trying to get my head around this. I'm trying to get my head around this. So what would be uh, an example of that? What what do you mean? Like something in the Irish landscape tells a story of what's there before. Okay, so um, first the Dinshanachas, the mythology. Now, if you read one of them, they sound utterly um, over the top and exaggerated, and a lot of them are rawmesh. They're rubbish because in I don't know when, maybe the 14th, yeah. 15th, 16th century, people would have just added more to the story to make them more outlandish. But an example, if you dig down to find truth, would be we do, I don't did we talk last time about town Cleona and town Tuya and town Rodriga no now these are three great waves of Ireland the three greatest waves I was talking about the five sacred trees that um your man the three the three the the, 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 the three key man had well there were three also great waves it's waves in the sea like the tide one of them but all three of them are still extant today like only a week ago did I hear that. So there's one wave town Cleona, it's in Glandor Harbour in County Cork. Okay. There's another town Rory, it's in Dundrum Bay in County yeah. Down. And there's another one in um called Town yeah. Town Tuya, which is in above above um it's on the way out to Rathen Island. Yeah. Um and what what Town Cleona, so what they is is these were waves and they have great stories. Like Town Cleona was a goddess and she was killed by Mononon, who was either her father or her lover. Fucking hell. Um, and so she still exists, this supernatural wave. You mm-hmm. still hear her on stormy nights. You go down to Glandor in Cor- County Cork and people tell you they hear her. She's mm-hmm. still alive. And town, let's say, Rory, as I said, a week ago, I was talking to people in um, in County Down and they said to me, in Castle Wellen, actually, and they said to me that they see town uh, Rory. Okay, so that's nice. There's a mm-hmm. mythology, a myth, a mythical story that they can see or hear today. Yeah. But what geologists are now telling us is they believe these waves were actually folk memories of the flood sheets, the ice what? sheets. 
that what? were washing off the landscape after the last ice age. Wow. Because you know the way most cultures, most ancient cultures remember a flood, have stories about a yeah. flood because they arrived in a land after a flood. Yeah. And we know exactly that's what happened in Ireland. 10,000 years ago, the ice sheet retreated up towards, um, towards Scotland and then up towards Iceland, the North Pole. Yeah. And as it did, floods and torrents of water were washing off the soil, off the land. And these two waves, Town Ruri and Town Tuya, there was one big ice sheet left around Loch Ney yeah. in, in Northern Ireland. And the southern, as the water melted from the south of Loch Ney, it went down through um, Points Pass, through and then into um, Carlingford Lock and Dundrum Bay. And into Dundrum, Carlingford Lock and then round into Dundrum Bay. And that's where town... Uh, Ruri still is today and then Town Tuya was the water according to geologists and geographers mm -hmm. that would have washed out from North Loch Ney mm -hmm. down the Upper Ban River and then out into the sea towards the, the, the Sea of Mwale towards Scotland and we can actually see with our own eyes sandbank that would have been washed out by this torrents of water mm -hmm. from the land as, it was, as the glacier melted off washed the land and pushed it out towards Rathlin Island so the fact that we have these stories that talk about these waves in specific places, which is exactly where geographers say the main, mm, the main flood water, the main meltwater from the glaciers would have been pummeling wow. off the land just when we were trying to set foot here 10,000 yeah. years ago. Incredible. That's, I mean, again, it could be a coincidence, but it sounds not like it. It sounds like this is a memory that we passed down thousands of years. In story. And it's it's so hard for me. It's so hard for me to 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 relate to because today we're like we're outsourcing all our memory now to to data to phones. Like I don't have to remember shit anymore because I've got a phone in my pocket that I can just Google. So I'm actively not remembering shit. I just take notes. Or if I if I hear something, I go. I don't need to remember that. I just need to remember a certain code that I can put into Google, and then it will tell me what I need to know. I know, yeah. Think back to that thing, the Shanachas Moor, the ancient text that recorded all the law. And what do they say? What is the preserving shrine? It's memory. What is it? It's not hard. It's in nature and what's preserved in it. And every one of us agree that all of our memories are now preserved in the most, the weakest, rubbish, most rubbish and ephemeral form, you know, on digital, that we will not remember our truth. Yeah. But since I talked to you last time, you know, I've been doing more of this project, Sea Tamagotchi Project, a project where I ask fishermen along the coast of Mayo, of Donegal and Galway for coastal words and sea words. And it has blown me away. And then since January, I set yeah. up an Instagram account at Moncon.Megan, just sending out every day a word that the fishermen would have told me and a recording of them explaining the words. And what I found, these words that are still being in daily use on the coastline of Ireland, in Donegal, Mayo and Galway. I, haven't, I will get down to Cork and Kerry at some point. But in these words, I was learning concepts um, about, in the words were sort of contained within the words or preserved were in them, were concepts about coastal practices, about navigational systems, about seasonal calendars, about psychological aspects of sea life, about migratory routes, about fishing techniques, about where exactly the fish were, what seasons they were in, what best ways to capture them. They're all within these words that are still there, but that are dying. Uh, one little thing here, I just have a little hot take that came into my brain there, uh, Mankan, which is like an, an ironic and sad uh, parallel to what you're speaking about. So we're speaking there about water and the relevance of, of how water has been used traditionally in Ireland for, for memory. And if you look at what's happening in Ireland today, Ireland is becoming the world's brain 
because of our low tax rate and our climate, these massive data centres, Amazon and Google are putting these huge, huge data centres in Ireland. And a data centre is effectively a building with no windows that contains the brain of the internet. This is where all the information is. And they're now dotted around the Irish countryside. But what these things need to survive is access to our water. So the data centres in Ireland are using up all of our water to cool down the electronic brains to remember stuff for the world. Powerful. That's beautiful. Good God. Yeah. Yeah. And what we're only realising now, and again, this is something that I has come clearly to me since I talked to you last October whenever. As I said, I'm writing... I have a book coming out maybe in autumn, this autumn, about evocative words for nature, for kids. But really the thing I'm focusing on is a book next, in October 2020, about place, about landscape. And if my book, 32 Words of for Fields, explored, you know, the hidden insights we can get from the Irish language, the next book is looking at the hidden insights we can get from, from place, from the landscape. And what's been blowing me away is the entire landscape of Ireland is feminine it's female it is just radically female and what we do when we think mm-hmm. of mythology we think of men we think of Finn McCool and we think of Cú Cullen and we think of you know kings different yeah. major kings and that that's all a layer that's been put on top of of knowledge so I don't know how it got there but one way is you remember you were saying these are accounts that were written down by monks you know most of our mythology and our sagas and it could well be that the yeah. monks decided to only record the stories about men because they Christianity is a patriarchy. It's all about just making sure men are in control. So there was a yeah. knowledge in Ireland, there was a mythology and a belief system in Ireland that was based on female, but they didn't pass that down. So you're finding a lot less stories about women in these manuscripts. That's been just vanished. That's been gone. And interestingly, uh, a, a parallel with that, um, when I was researching my my documentary about 1916 that I made uh, in 2016, it was very, very difficult to hear about women who had been part of 1916 or who had even been involved in the Irish War of Independence because uh, the only people who got pensions in post-independent Southern Ireland were men. Mm. So these are the only stories that got recorded. And because women weren't entitled to pensions, even if they were in the IRA, we never recorded their stories. So there's very little information about that. Even though I had grandfathers in the IRA, I also had uh, grand-aunts who were involved in that as well. But their stories didn't get recorded because they didn't apply for a pension. They couldn't. Interesting. There is, there's a one interesting source. Remember, I think we were talking about my granny with Sheila Humphreys, who was vice president of the Common Man at some point in the 20s yeah. and 30s. But when, I think in the 60s, much later in life, in the 50s and 60s, they finally did, you know, bring in laws that maybe some people were able to retrospectively get get pensions. And a lot of the women who were in Common Man at the time, as you said, they were not able to get pensions previously. They Then there was a chance they could. And they started writing to my granny in the 60s, and telling my granny, would you ever sign a form to say I was in Common Amon? And then they'd list all the things they did so that as proof that mm-hmm. they were in it. And I gave all those papers when I was like 17 or 18. They were all in the garage and I'd just go through them all because uh, I was interested in the history at the time. But I gave them all to UCD. And UCD, thankfully, thanks to these yeah. data centers, you know, everything is now being digitized in UCD archives and in archives all over Ireland. So that information yeah. isn't fully available on the internet yet. But my, the whole collection of all my, the letters to my granny and all that coming to Mon archive has been digitized and hopefully within a few years will be accessible. 
But as you say, there is this massive blind spot at the moment. Yeah, I'd offer trouble trying to find things. Uh, just uh, another thing too, just to take things back to the water, right? You, you spoke at the start of the podcast about how the rivers of Ireland, such as the Shannon, were considered um, like places of knowledge, like knowledge flowed through the river. And I can't help but um, tie this up with the salmon of knowledge, this salmon that had all the knowledge in folklore, that had all the knowledge of the world, if you, if you could just catch this salmon. What was the deal with Ireland rivers, salmon, lakes, knowledge, and, and mm. knowledge being this thing that you wanted to have and that you'd get punished for if you tried to get too much? <laughs> yeah, so... And again, when you go back this far in anything, so we could just go and talk about, as I said, Cúchollin and Finn McCool, but they might be just, um, you know, it's hard to know. They could be just Iron Age stories. So they could be like as late as, I don't know, 500 AD, 5th century, even, the, even like 800, 1000 AD. We, we don't know. But when we go further back than that into female stuff, into stuff where women had power, and again, there's no proof of when women had power, yeah. but we sort of know in our bones there was a time before male patriarchy. Then you get into something that um, it's not just Ireland anymore. In the same way as when you go right back into the roots of the Irish language, it's not Irish. As I said, we've seen, if you go far back in the Irish language, it's basically Irish and Sanskrit are the same language. They're an Indo-European language, the same concepts, the same rules. If you go back into landscape long enough and rivers you're back to the female world and that is a world where you can't have nations because nations haven't been invented so what we know we seem to know is that from our aboriginal from indigenous people all around the world that la the soil the land was female you know that's what newgrange and not is about the male son the phallus the male sexual organ um, impales itself or impregnates the female womb, the female earth at different times of the year. So in uh, in um, Newgrange, it happens at the um, solstice mm -hmm. and in Loch Crewe, it happens at the equinoxes. Is, um, is that why in the middle of the hill of Tara, there's this big stone phallus, like this big rock langer, right. langer in the middle of it? Yeah, exactly. That's it. I mean, as far as we can be okay. sure, all we can be sure is that phallus, that sexual organ sticking up is to be found in India. You know, it's a key part still today of the lingam of the of Hindu culture, the penis. And it's as Bob Quinn has found similar ones in Tunisia. This was it was a global culture. Well, what are we saying? Yeah, it's Europe, Asian cultural phenomenon that there was a male who had to impregnate the female. And God, if you strip back any of our old stories, in other words, if you go beyond the Finn McCool, even the Finn McCools, but if you go beyond those to, oh, to the stories, it's all about the, the female and then the male having its tiny role just to impregnate, to put its seed into the female. And then the female creates everything beyond it. So in Ireland, we realize all of our rivers have female names, um, they're all females, except Irlo Linnard um, of, you know, of the, the, the amazing musician. He names this one down in him. He's from Balavorn in Cork. And he says there's one male river, a, a, sh a shitty little stream, I think, not even a big one. But the fact that it sort of proves it's the exception that makes the rule. That every female, because water was feminine, gushing water nourished the land. It created life, which is what women did. Uh, what the female energy did. And again, you find the exact same thing in India. So let's say the, Bo the Boyle River in Roscommon is named after the cow, a female life-giving animal, just as yeah. the Boyne River is, you know, Boinda. We talked about this last time. It's a female, the Boinda, the white cow. 
um, river. Yeah. And it's the exact same as Govinda, which is the Indian river. Uh, sorry, which related uh, Indi- with the Milky Way up above us. It is indeed, exactly. So the Boin, uh, Boinda, the goddess that's made manifest in the Boin River, is the same as Govinda, the Indian god, an, epith- an epithet of Krishna. But then the Bo Nemed is a river in Ulster. And Bo Nemed basically means sacred cow. The river is a sacred female nourishing form. The Bogoira is a is the old name for the Blackwater in County Meath. These were all female goddess rivers. There's a, there's a river in India called Gomati. So do you remember we said Bo is the Irish for cow? Sanskrit is the Sanskrit for cow is Go. Go and Bo, same word, same yeah. root. So there's a river in, in India called Gomati, possessing of cows, and then Godavari, giving cows. It, I mean, it's is ridiculous. this why cows are sacred in parts of India? Exactly. And it's exact and, and what do you think, you know, what were sacred in Ireland? What was the key um form of currency before the Normans Fuck, arrived? Yeah, the fucking the, the cows. Exactly, exactly. You, and like Oh shit. Yeah, if you were important in Ireland, mm-hmm. it was how many fucking cows you owned. That's what the whole Dataan is about. Exactly, exactly. And like, you know, you'll get that obviously with the, with the, in Kenya, with the Maasai people, but it just goes in, in, in Ireland and in India, it goes beyond just your possessions. It's everything. So, you know, the main story that's come down to us, the main mythology is Tainbo Kuin, the battle raid of Kuli. And what's the main story you think of India? It's the Maharabata. What is the Maharabata about? It's about cattle raiding. We have the exact same culture. And, you know, rivers are vital in both countries because the land is alive. The land is sacred. So, I mean, this has all been... This has all been denied us, all of this information, because, you know, first of, I suppose, during colonial era, it was in old Irish that we didn't understand anymore. And then the and I say like the, the main people who transcribed, who tra- translated them, the, the texts from the late 19th century and the early 20th century, two of them were my relations, T.F. O'Rahilly, a first cousin of the O'Rahilly of Michael O'Rahilly of 1916. T.F. O'Rahilly, I never met, but he's the yeah. main, um, one of the main Celtic scholars who translated um, these ancient manuscripts. And then his sister, Cecil O'Rahilly, who I knew very well, she was the first major translator of the Tainbo Kuln, the, the cattle raid of Ulster. Wow. She was, but she was in an so era. So this is fucking family shit for you, man. This You're, you're carrying on a tradition. I, I mean, I didn't expect me. I had no idea I was going to get into this. And but they were they were scholars and experts. I, you know, I am just a journalist picking at this. I have no deep knowledge of any of it. I'm just rooting around. Um, one question I got asked, Mancon, is uh, are there? Someone was saying that there's forgotten words that are associated with crafts, with different crafts that we had in Ireland, and alongside these crafts were words, and now these words are gone. And do you know anything about them or these words? I do. But, well, by coincidence, again, as I said, I really, I, I know what's in my book and I didn't look at those in my book, but the Craft Council of Ireland recently got onto me and had the same idea as your, as your listener was saying, what are the words connected with crafts? So I started looking at the words connected to weaving. I think your listener was interested in woodworking, but I, I'm going to get onto woodworking at some point, but weaving blew me away. Yeah. So, um, for the the phrase for a weaver, a weaver setting up his loom, okay, is Fyodor Igdenevachid Umucha. So a weaver is Fyodor Igdenevachid Umucha, doing his Umuchas. And basically it translates as a weaver getting into his harness. So there was this idea that weaving, um, we, weaving cloth, you know, which is a really ancient tradition that goes back, um, tell you exactly, yeah. it goes back. Um, in uh, Dublin, we have weaving cloth from 2,700 years ago, but in Armagh, we have 
woven pottery on uh, woven patterns on pottery from 3,006 years, six, 3,600 years ago. But in truth, like weaving goes back to the beginnings of it goes thousands, thousands of years. But this idea of a weaver setting up his harness, he was basically he was a weaver was getting into the loom and same way as a draft animal gets into a plow. It's the same word. Umucha is used for the heddles, which are the the ties that tie the loom together and also the tie the animal to the to the plow. I just love that idea. So you're either plowing the soil or plowing the cloth that comes from the mm-hmm. animal's back. And there's quite a few, like the there's another links between weaving and plowing. The word trumon, which is a spindle whirl, or the part of the spindle in which the, the wheel string works. So the only thing we know about a spindle, you know, is in the center of a record player, that pin that's a, that's a spindle. But long ago, that was the pin on which weaving went around. Yeah. Um, and so that word trumon can mean that spindle, but it can also mean the leather backband of plow traces. I don't know. I mean, I hardly know what a backband of plow traces are, but I know it's a key element of of um, of ploughing. A trombone can also mean a woman's pregnancy. So I love the fact that you're suddenly get if you get into weaving or mm-hmm. if you get into the Irish language and look at the use the Irish language as a prism, you just get straight back to the soil, back to rootedness. And of course you do, because everything in life depended on either the land or the seasons. And that's why all these fishing words that I collected are still so rooted in wind directions, in rock formations, in the movements of shoals of fish. We are just a people based on grounded in the land. And, you know, whatever, we know it's only the last 200 years that we have moved away from that. And one last thing I'm going to ask you about, Mankon, is someone asked me to, to ask you about a trip you had planned to do to find the mythical Irish island of High Brazil. Could you speak about that plan and also describe to us what is High Brazil? Yeah, so... High Brazil, in theory, is an island that is off the southwest coast of Ireland. Um, and some people believe that it gave the name to Brazil, to the to the country in South America. So what it is, it was a mythological, mysterious island that was believed about in the west coast of Ireland, but it was shrouded in a coast of mist until forever, uh, for seven years, and then revealed itself for a little bit and then hid again between the coast, uh, between mist. Now, what gave it structure and more believability was that it was suddenly put on maps from, um, oh, I, th- I think with a really, yeah. really early one, about 1,500 years ago. I'd have to check that. Um, but then it I was... Saw um, one from thir- I saw one from the 13th century with High Brazil. That's right, there is indeed. And then it was it was on maps up until in the 18th century, up until the late 19th century, up until 1890, British admirable, uh, Admiralty maps had it, um, had, it, had it on it. So, you know... Something that was part of our mythological world, world, and that we just told told stories about, then crossed into reality by, um, you know, by being on maps. You had this divide. So whether it exists or not, we know that then in the 19th century there were people went naval or sort of yeah merchant naval vessels went in search of it, and they never. Well, (laughs) some people claim they found it. well, whether they did or not is sort of is it's hard to know. But there's now a reinterest in finding it. So I think I don't know where I was talking about that. Someone had a filmmaker had asked me, would I join some other group of people to go on a journey in search of High Brazil? Just there's a few hints of where it might be. Like there's a a particular beyond the is it the Porcupine Bank beyond the southwest of Ireland? There's this quite area of high of a sandbank of high. Um, land you know approaches the the surface of the sea and they were thinking that it might have been that mm-hmm. it might have been that it, you know the, the land came above the sea so anyway 
me and some others were going to make a go off on a journey and there was going to make a film about it but that film didn't get funding but in the meantime some other group from Armagh got on to me and they said they're going to make a film they have a one-armed sailor who just crossed the Atlantic during COVID during COVID lockdown he got into his yacht his one-armed sailor from Northern Ireland and sailed across the Atlantic and now what he's going to do is join some other people and go on a journey to um to high Brazil. In fact, they wanted to get in contact with you about it, oh, which really? is interesting. Um, but <laughs> that's the type of thing I get contacted about. You know, it's like there's a one-armed sailor and he wants to find a mythical island in the Atlantic Ocean. It's like contact blind boy immediately and ask him if he wants to come along. What this shows is something really exciting in that um, we something is changing in Ireland. Like we are finally get wanting answers to who we are, to where we come from, to the land around us. Like, this information has been around, you know, for at least 150 years. I mean, it's been around for thousands of years, but it's been accessible in some way in libraries for 150 years to translate into English. But only now do we want to know the deep truth of our past, the fact that the female goddess holds sway, the fact that our seas, or that our trees and that our water is sacred, the fact that there are things beyond reality in a sort of quantum type way. There can be land masses that might appear and I might not appear. And I feel amazingly optimistic about this. Do you know what I think that is as well though, Mancon? Go on. I think I think that right now uh, de- to be decolonial in thought is no longer a dirty word. Um, I, I reckon it may, might be a post-Good Friday Agreement thing, I don't know. But to be decolonial, to, to recognise that colonialism in Ireland, that it wasn't a good thing, that it's possible to be decolonial and to detach that from hating the British or or to be decolonial without an anger to it and to say, no, I want to look at my history and I want to look at my history through the lens of uh, colonisation. Like, I'm I'm fascinated with the climate, climate change and Ireland. I'm fascinated by the fact that Cromwell got rid of all the forests and turned Ireland into pasture land and that, you know... I'm fascinated by the fact that the Irish famine, you can view it through the lens of the climate crisis. It was a form of climate crisis in a sense because colonialism forced us into a monoculture. So it's it's okay now to look back at our history and to say we had something really, really big and really important that's relevant to our identities today. And it's we need to strip back that lens, going back to the fucking penal laws of what was told to us about what Ireland is and who we are. You know, to to redefine it and to take ownership of it and to take ownership of it in a way that invites people in who come from different countries too and now are Irish. You know what I mean? Oh, like, I, I agree with every word you're saying. Yeah, it's and it's so exciting. And talk of climate change, you know, the ultimate climate change was what happened in the 5th century AD when Christianity arrived. Like, um... Professor Mike Bailey, yeah, Mike Bailey of Queen's University has proven that from uh, dendrochronology, you know, the dating of oak trees particularly, that there was massive bad winters, a series of at least a decade of appalling winters um, and summers where there was no summer, basically. There was winter all year round, so no crops would have grown for 10 years in exactly the time that the main push of Christianity happened. I think it was around 530 or 520 or 530 AD. So the first missionaries came, you know, 430. AD. We know from St. Patrick he wasn't making much progress. It was very hard for him. People were rejecting it. They kept on believing in their worship of landscape and land and female goddesses and the sea. 
in the river. But then around the beginning of the 6th century, suddenly these monasteries and chapels wow. took over Ireland exactly the time where we had had this 10 or 15 years of bad winters. Holy and Christians fuck. were able to say, your gods don't work anymore. You need to accept new gods. Because the, the ancient Irish religion is is so much about uh, like it, it, the, all the different gods and goddesses within the, the ancient Irish culture was about harvests and it was about relying upon the, the, the weather to sort you out with your harvest. So you're saying that at a time when this was failing, when you can't rely upon the winter, that this God and Jesus Christ all of a sudden becomes palatable because the harvest isn't showing up. Your gods have abandoned you. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, Professor Mike Bailey is renowned internationally. Wow. He's, he's regarded as the finest dendrochronologist in, in the world. He's now retired. So I have a, a podcast for RT, I do for RT called The Almanac of Ireland. And we have one episode we interviewed Mike Bailey. It's worth listening. Like, it's factual study. He can, he can, it's, you know, every O of his peers accept his dendrochronology. You can see this appalling series of years. He, it was either a volcano in Iceland or something caused this, caused the dust in the, in the sky. And the Christians took advantage. And so that's, you know, that was when we turned away from the female and the land. We just, the land abandoned us. Just like we say in the famine, the land let us down. We had to turn our back on the land. It initially did it in the sixth century. And that's why we moved away and took on this ridiculous rubbish of Christianity. And then that allowed us to take on other rubbish of of, um, colonialism. But we were, you know, potent. We would not have given up. And capitalism, because capitalism and Christianity work hand in hand. Exactly, exactly. And so we can we can either lambaste the past, but what's amazing is we happen to be alive at the one moment when all of this realisation and enlightenment is happening. So we're going to look at everything post maybe 2012 as dark ages. A new or era has come where, you know, this idea of connect, not being ashamed, as you said, of the landscape and of your ancient indigenous um connections and not and allowing the female energy not seeing that as a threat but seeing it as a nourishing life-giving force is it's a phenomenally exciting times and it's only beginning i know there's going to be a few rough decades but i am like just so i can't i can't believe how the interest that's happening in gardening and the irish language in soil and in connecting just as you said not only irish people but irish people with cultures all over the world and welcoming new people in it's it's an amazing time i think Okay, thank you so much for that, man, Con. Um, that was absolutely everything I, I, I wanted from that chat. So that was my chat with man, Con, Megan. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Hope you liked it too. Very fun, very informative. I'll probably have him back on again. I'd love to meet him for a pint, you know. I haven't met man, Con in real life because of, because of COVID. So when things get a bit more more normal, I'd love to have a pint with him. Um. So I'll catch you next week. Feeling there might be a hot take next week. I've got a couple of ideas boiling up. In the meantime, mind yourselves. Have some self-compassion. Go easy on yourself. Don't be too hard on yourself. Be nice to yourself. Rub a dog. 
Let's get this dinner party started.